On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, John and I debrief on the ASCA 2020 Winter Seminars in New Orleans, discuss the latest news in the industry, talk about finance and accounting in the ASC industry, and review budgeting and financial projecting in ambulatory surgery centers. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, a podcast for anyone interested in the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to ambulatory healthcare strategies have an edge. AHS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement, risk management, emergency and infection control programs, run their meetings, develop education programs, and always be prepared for surveys. Welcome to episode 83 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 20th, 2020, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and I'm here with John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. John is the author of a number of books about the industry and the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the industry leader in ASC regulatory and accreditation, governance, and quality improvement oversight. And you just got back from... A very busy trip. <laughs> yes, a whirlwind trip to uh, New Orleans with quite a bit of the staff. We left you home. Somebody had to mind the house while I was yes. gone. Uh, so thank you for taking care of that. But you know something? I really appreciate the work you do on the podcast while I was there because we recorded a special <laughs> episode. For those that, that are not aware, mm-hmm. episode 82 is a special uh, podcast that we recorded right from the conference. And we're talking about the Winter Seminars 2020 from the ASC Association. And we recorded it kind of live. And since mm-hmm. I'm not nearly as good at editing as you are, <laughs> I didn't do a lot of editing. <laughs> so just apologize to our audience right now for uh, any <laughs> any uh, any spontaneity sure that's in there. But uh, it was kind of it was a lot of fun. We mm-hmm. had had an opportunity to to interview Christina Benton and Ann Geyer, and of course the HS team. And I think it was like about 45-minute episode on the various things that we talked about mm-hmm. during the conference. Anne's always a lot of fun to interview, and she did a great job. Christina, of course, is the uh, nation's real expert on uh, coding and billing in the ASC field, and she had uh, a lot of great insights. So I'd like to thank both of them for doing that special episode. If you haven't listened to it already, it's episode 82. You know, it was a great time, Sue. I saw a lot of friends met a lot of our listeners and then a lot of people that didn't even know a podcast existed. So uh, it was, uh, as always, a great opportunity. Again, we're hearing the same thing that we've heard before, that many of our listeners would like to hear more about finance. So we're continuing to work on it. As a matter of fact, that's what this episode is going to be uh, kind of focusing on as we get into the part two. Mm-hmm. 
So a lot of things happened during these things, and Christina Benton and I had an opportunity to talk a little bit about bringing her on for a special episode about what we think would be useful is what does a nurse administrator and an administrator uh, need to know about coding in the surgery center setting. So we're going to try to work on that hopefully sometime in March. Uh, We'll uh, interview her for that. I think that could be a very enlightening conversation, Mm -hmm. and certainly the people that were at the conference that attended the coding sessions, uh, there were just a lot of questions about very various coding issues that tend to pop up. And so this is also interesting. Christina Benton and I are working on putting together a conference that would be focused on finance, accounting, business office, coding, and compliance. And this would be uh, geared toward CASC recipients and coders, billing, and office managers that has certifications through AAPC. That's the American Academy of Professional Coders. Mm -hmm. So more information to come. Nothing's uh, settled yet, but we're hoping to do it later on this year. That's exciting. It it is very exciting. It'll be co-sponsored by the SC Podcast and Christina Benton's company. I noted, Sue, too, that the book sales for the survey checklist for ASC is a tool for the CMS conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines for ambulatory surgery centers are starting to take off. That uh, book was written by Alex Borneman and myself, and it provides a great tool for assessing how prepared you are for CMS or deemed status surveys and includes checklists for both the health and the life safety parts of the survey. So if you haven't picked that up, you might want to uh, check it out. Definitely very useful for people that are coming up on a survey. And I think the life safety section in particular is probably something that I I don't think there's anything like it actually in the marketplace. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a pretty reasonably priced book, I think. And you can get a discount if you become a patron member of the podcast by visiting our website at ASCPodcast.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Patron members also get uh, AEU credits for listening to the uh, podcast. They get discounts on other books. They get discounts on mock surveys, access to special content, including policies and procedures and forms and example minutes. Uh, For example, I just posted to the patron page example minutes of the governing body quality improvement and uh, medical executive. And I also created a a special spreadsheet that we're going to talk about a little bit later that can assist administrators and business office managers in preparing a budget or a financial projection. So that tool uh, is already up there, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about it during the second segment. And we wanted to remind everybody that ASCA 2020 is coming on May 13th. It'll be the 13th through the 16th in Orlando. And early bird rates will expire March 13th. So you could save $100 per attendee if you do it in time. And John, you've got some news about that. Yes. Actually, our director of operations came to me and said, why don't we give uh, retainer clients of ambulatory healthcare strategies a credit on their retainer invoice if at least one member of their staff attends the conference. Mm -hmm. So that is what we are going to do. We're going to give a $250 credit for any of our retainer clients in the month of June so that you would get a a credit during your June retainer invoice if at least one member of your staff attends the conference. So I thought that was a good way to encourage people Mm -hmm. uh, to get there to help defray the cost. You know, obviously these conferences are expensive and sometimes maybe $250 would just be enough money to help encourage them to attend. So again, Mm -hmm. if you're a retainer client of Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, or if you want to become a retainer <laughs> client of Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, uh, here's uh, $250 toward uh, attending the conference. So 2020 marks the 50th year of the ASC industry, and uh, I am so excited about this. I mean, you know, first of all, it doesn't seem to me like 50 years. It seems like mm-hmm. a, a lot longer. 
and, and I've been in the industry more than half of that time. I started in uh, 1990 in the industry. The industry started in 1970. And the nation's first ambulatory surgery center was actually started in 1970 by anesthesiologists Walter Reed and John Ford in Phoenix, Arizona. The center was called Surgery Center. And when it opened, Medicare did not even provide reimbursement for services in that type of a setting. Medicare reimbursement for ASCs began in 1982, and at that time, services were lumped into one of four different payment groups. And this was uh, actually uh, expanded to nine payment groups a number of years later. And in 2008, Medicare began the transition to the current APC-based system that we all know and love today. 30 years, that's a long time to be involved in this industry. It is, and, and probably more interesting is that when I got involved in 1990, I was involved in one of the first 20 ambulatory surgery centers in the state of New York. Mm-hmm. So whereas the industry started in 1970, New York didn't get into it until, you know, around uh, uh, 1990. Given that 50 years is quite a milestone for the industry, it's a good thing to to use to kind of publicize what's going on and mm-hmm. get some advocacy for the industry. And certainly uh, with my long-term commitment to the industry at 30 years, uh, we think it helps to show it's a relatively young industry, uh, and that's what makes us dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's a good time to point out that this year's National Advocacy Day is taking place in Washington, D.C. on March 24th and 25th. Participation in ASCA's National Advocacy Day is the best way to build relationships with your members of Congress, advocate for your ASC and the ASC community, and networking with other ASC leaders. So take a look on the ASCA website if you're interested in that. And Sue, you have some news about infection prevention. In the January 16th ICCS Infection Prevention and Control Newsletter, I saw a couple interesting notes. They referred to ARN's revised guideline for sharp safety, where they recommend double gloving as a way to reduce sharps injury, and they cited a new systematic review of randomized controlled trials on double gloving. This review includes evidence that glove Perforations were reduced by 71% when wearing two pairs of gloves compared to only wearing one. That's a pretty significant number. Absolutely. And there was also a note in the newsletter to remind patients about their own hand hygiene. It was noted to be a significant factor in decreasing hospital-acquired infections and ICUs. And I know we're a different setting, but it's just a good reminder to include the need for good hand hygiene when you're educating your patients. Because as much as we, we're always pushing it for the healthcare worker, it's also very important for the patient themselves. Yeah, and, and it might be another good time to point out how poorly healthcare providers fare when we do an honest hand hygiene assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that the national average is somewhere between 60 and 70% compliance with hand hygiene requirements. And that tends to bear out when surveyors are surveying centers. And yet I walk into uh, places that I'm doing a survey on and, you know, they'll have hand hygiene compliance that'll show 100% compliance all the time. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's quite Not embarrassing for them when I point out right away that, that I found it very different. So I, you need to take this very seriously. Don't report 100%. Nobody's going to believe you if you report 100% mm-hmm. compliance with hand hygiene. And if indeed you feel that you're doing really well, probably raise the bar a little bit and just make sure that you're analyzing all aspects of your hand hygiene program there. Mm-hmm. Before gloving, after gloving, right. before and after patients. I mean, there's always more aspects that you can look at. And actually, Sue, why don't I, on the patron page, let me uh, upload a, an example of a new hand hygiene surveillance tool that we have. Maybe that'll mm-hmm. help people to kind of move it up another level. Okay, let's take a short break and we'll come back and talk about finance and accounting, budgeting, and financial projections in the ambulatory surgery industry. 
So, John, this is a huge topic that you get a lot of questions about. And while it's not my favorite topic to talk about finances, <laughs> I actually every found... <laughs> nurse on the planet. <laughs> but I guess it's necessary. And I did actually find the notes pretty interesting as I was looking through it. So I'm, I'm actually anxious to hear this. Um, I know you spoke for about three hours on it at the winter seminars. So you're only going to focus on a few aspects in this episode, but you're but I'm going to remind everybody that you will be preparing a major premium podcast about this in the future. So right. and, stay and don't tuned. say me because we're both going to be doing <laughs> it because there's no way on earth we want uh, just my voice on that premium podcast. Yeah, the the script is mostly written for it, and uh, we're going to record it in a couple of weeks. I think a premium podcast would be a good way to kind of uh, help people, especially nurses that are new to financial management and also yeah. anybody that's preparing for the CASC exam. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, hopefully sometime in uh, early March we'll have that out. We're hoping to record that while we're on vacation. I'm so what we're really talking about here is the intersection of finance and accounting and budgeting and financial projections. And we're going to keep talking about finance and accounting through the next year. But Today, let's just kind of focus on uh, budgeting and financial projections, some of those things, especially, you know, now we're at the beginning of the year, that's the time to think about how your finances are going to go for the next year, and let's do that as our focus. Let's start by a definition of what a budget is, and a budget is, quite simply, a plan that forecasts revenue and expenses for an organization. And, you know, that was the first thing that I found surprising, because I think of budget as being a very restrictive thing, and it sounds much more um, useful and hopeful and not so restrictive, which is what I always think of as a budget is, but this really puts it in a different light. Yeah, and actually, you really get to the heart of it, I think, because what you've just described is exactly the way I think most nurses approach budgeting, is that it's this hammer that's being mm -hmm. held over mm -hmm. them. And I think you're right, is that, that um, that's not the way accountants tend to think about budgets, but when they're rolled out to the staff or to, to nurses, especially in the hospitals, which I think is where you're referring to, because you're, mm -hmm. that, that was always the excuse that you couldn't have a new piece of equipment mm -hmm. or couldn't mm -hmm. fix something is that, uh, sorry, there's no money in the budget this year for it, or we can't have an extra person on the floor because there's no room in the budget. So it was always used in the hospital setting as uh, the excuse or the reason why you couldn't do something. Uh, whereas a budget really is a tool or is what we refer to here, a plan that simply says, okay, this is what our revenue expenses are for the next year and this is what our expectations are. So I think the first question is, why are we budgeting in the first place? And as I'm going to talk about a little bit later, I'm not sure that everybody needs to have a budget. Uh, many times you're required to have a budget because you have a hospital partner or because you have a management company that uh, manages your place or quite simply so large that you need to have some type of a plan. So ultimately, a budget really needs to be part of a strategic plan or the business plan of the organization. In other words, it, it needs to be the financial manifestation of all of those goals and objectives that you set uh, when you uh, put together the strategic plan for the organization. We really, Sue, we need to do an episode on strategic planning, too, because mm -hmm. I don't think we've talked about that in a bit. Yeah, and I know that's a huge passion of yours, too. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, again, the strategic plan should drive the numbers that show up in your budget. Other reasons you might budget is it's a good way to benchmark. If you uh, set some goals as to what type of financial results you expect, then those become the goals of which you, you target. That It provides you some guidance as to where the organization expects you to be. 
It also helps you to identify problems before they become major. If you've set this benchmark, when you fall outside of those parameters, when you start to see expenses over budget or you start to see revenue dropping, now you have uh, very definitive information that shows you how you're off the mark. And maybe uh, as a result of comparing your budget numbers to what's actually happening, you can jump on that much quicker than if you didn't have a budget. Would you be checking that every quarter? Like, how often are you checking to see how on track you are? That, that's a good point, and that's a good – actually, that's not even in my show notes, so <laughs> thank you for asking that. That's a really good question and very controversial. Well, maybe not so much controversial as it really depends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think large organizations, you, you almost have to do it on a monthly basis. But for the average surgery center, if you are going to do budgeting, probably quarterly is more appropriate. You don't want to have it in such a short time frame. I mean, take it to an extreme. You could budget by day, mm-hmm. you know, but every – day is going to be different. So the longer the time frame, the more useful that information is going to be and the more objectively you can look at that information and make uh, really good comments about you know, why you're outside of the budget mm-hmm. parameters. So we talked about how they can identify problems before they become major, but they can also identify opportunities. I give a story when I uh, I speak about how a number of years ago I was noting that uh, one particular doctor uh, was always way over budget in the number of cases he was bringing to the center. And he snuck up on all of us in the organization. And we didn't realize that his volume had been growing and he mm-hmm. was so quiet about it that he didn't really make a big deal. And, and suddenly I realized, well, this might explain why he wants a little bit more time. And we're not mm-hmm. giving him extra time because we hadn't noted what growth he was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because we were looking at the budgeted numbers and saw that his numbers were way outside of what we had anticipated, uh, we were able to jump on that pretty quickly. You know, obviously, Another main reason, and this is to your point, usually this is the hammer that people use to control costs. It's either becomes the excuse for not buying something or not spending money on a category or quite simply as a way of saying, hey, this is how much we anticipate you need for running this place. If you go outside of those numbers, then we need to have a good explanation for it. I think the next bullet point, which is planning major equipment purchases, is the most important reason for having a budget. Even if I think that you might not need uh, an operating budget, everybody needs to have an equipment purchasing budget for their organization just to be able to plan for the major equipment purchases that you're going to have to make and to to make sure that you never run into a situation where you have to come to the doctors and say, hey, by the way, I got a $500,000 bill for you here uh, for uh, new equipment, and I'm sorry I didn't tell you about it sooner. So at the very least, you should have an equipment budget or what we would call a capital budget. Uh, budgeting also helps to determine profitable and unprofitable services because once a year it sit, it forces you to sit down and kind of look at what's going on in your organization. Uh, it was based on this that uh, you know many years ago we determined in one organization that it was time to get out of the GI business because it just wasn't making money for this particular organization. And of course, adapting and anticipating changes in your operation or in the industry during uh, 2007, the year before the major change in 2008 to the the way amateur surgery centers were reimbursed. I spent much of the year traveling across the country speaking at uh, conferences about how do you prepare for the major changes that were coming down the pike. And I was uh, talking a lot at that time about budgeting and financial projections and giving some recommendations to ambulatory surgery centers as they were preparing for that major change in the way that we were being reimbursed. So let's now talk about the budget process. First of all, you need to understand that it is going to take several months to complete. When I was reading over that, I was wondering, how often can you 
tweak it or adjust it. I feel like if you do it too often, it's probably not very uh, reliable because you're always changing it. But then at what point do you? adjust it. And as uh, typical for you <laughs> nurses, you already jumped ahead <laughs> to really the challenge that we have with the budget process is that budgeting is also considered to be a you know, a very step-by-step process mm-hmm. here. And to your point, you know, when I talk about the budget process here, we talk about the number of months to do it, you know, that you have to prepare, you have to get plenty of data. But the problem with this is you're really getting to is that by the time you're finished, after by the time you've done two months of work mm-hmm. to prepare this budget, that information is already outdated. And that if you're not willing to go back and make adjustments – afterwards, then your budget might very well become useless. In the hospital environment, in very large corporations, this isn't so much of an issue. But in small centers, where even being off by a couple percent could have a a major impact in the organization, that Mm -hmm. really does become a serious issue. So to your point, I really don't believe in these rigid rigid budget processes that many organizations feel they have to have. So my feeling is, I'm going to talk about a little bit later, uh, it's almost like you're reading my mind, (laughs) you're reading the notes. That would be (laughs) frightening. We don't want to read your mind. (laughs) That's right. But but to that point, really, I feel that we have to have a very flexible process if we're Mm -hmm. going to do it correctly in the ambulatory surgery industry. So to prepare properly, you really do need to have input from others in the ambulatory surgery uh, center, you know, including materials managers, the nurse manager, you know, administrators, billing office people, et cetera. And of course, you need to get the approval from the board, which means you need to talk to the board about what parameters uh, they want to set for that budget. And of course, you need enough historical information to provide accurate input into your model. I really like to start the process sometime around September because that gives me a good nine months of data, eight, eight to nine months of data if I'm going to actually prepare a budget. And who should be involved in that whole process? So ideally, you really should have, you know, the governing body give you some guidance at the beginning of the process. What I like to do is I go to the governing body and say, okay, what type of raises do you anticipate giving to the employees? Are there going to be major changes this year? Do you know of uh, some doctors that are coming that I don't know about? And ask them to give you some very basic parameters to, to work around. Often, this is a very collaborative part of the process where you say, okay, these are what I think is going to happen next year. What do you think is going to happen? Obviously, the administrator, the nurse manager, the purchasing department, nurses, accountants, and of course, I have to say this, consultants, because sometimes you just need a lot more information to be able to put together a good budget. And I know there's quite a few types of different budgets. Why don't you explain some of those to us? Sure. So there's the capital budget, uh, which we talked about before, which is kind of a, a summary of all of the major capital expenditures. And capital budgets tend to be something that you lay out over like a five-year period. Uh, and they're, they tend to be a lot simpler because they're really just kind of a list of all the equipment that you're going to have to replace you know, by year over the next five years. I usually create a spreadsheet with columns for each of the next five years and then line items for the major capital expenditures or like anything over $5,000 in equipment replacements that might uh, occur over that five And with that, period. you're just estimating. That's right? correct. you really can't. Right. Uh, or a little bit better than an estimate, but well, to that point, you don't know when this equipment's going to break mm-hmm. down. And every year, you're going to move those numbers around. It's, frankly, I keep that capital budget very active. So I go to the board periodically and say, hey, you know, some things have changed. Uh, the boiler is not going to make it to 2027. Um, so we're going to have to move that up a bit. Okay. 
Second type is the operating budget, which is the most common thing that people think of when we are talking about a budget. Third is cash flow budget. Now, cash flow budgets sound like something that you would always want to prepare, and frankly, uh, that's not really the case. Once an ambulatory surgery center is up and running and making good money, you don't actually need a cash flow budget because uh, cash flow budgets are most useful when you're experiencing cash crunches. So that means uh, the most popular time to have a cash flow budget is when you're starting up and when you're borrowing heavily from the bank and you have to show them how you're going to be able to make it from you know the beginning of operations to the point at which you're making enough money to be able to pay the bills. Okay, so it's less a tool for you than it is for trying to get loans or correct and, like and, and explaining why you need this. And also, it, it is a tool for you because you're going to need that information to figure out exactly how much money you're going to borrow. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out, the bank's going to want to say, "Hey, listen, how are you going to expend this money, and when are you going to finally be able to pay us back?" And then there's there's other types of budgets like break even analysis and sensitivity analysis, which we could do an entire podcast on both of those. So there is really outside of the the scope of this particular uh, episode. So there are really two types of of ways to go about budgeting. One is the dictatorial uh, way and one is the participative. And to the terminology, the dictatorial is when one person kind of does the entire uh, budget, puts the whole thing together. And the other one is participative when you have uh, like a team of people that are are working on it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, most hospitals uh, use a participative approach to it. Uh, Most surgery centers, though, are probably going to have a dictatorial approach, to be honest, because... uh, one person is probably going to drive the whole process. And in every organization that I ran, uh, the dictatorial approach was the approach because I was the only one that, frankly, even cared about doing the budget. And I was the only one that had the experience in putting it together. Just because we call it dictatorial doesn't mean that, you know, we take a hard approach to it. It just means that one person is driving the process mm-hmm. and one person is is responsible for the ultimate product. And what are the different ways that you can prepare the budgets? So there's basically in the United States right now really two approaches to it. One is the uh, incremental approach and one is called the zero-based approach. And an incremental approach is where you kind of just take the prior year's numbers and mm-hmm. you say, okay, I'm going to raise them by you know, 1% this year or 2% or, or often what we're doing is we're taking whatever happened the previous year and rounding the number up to the, you know, the nearest thousand mm-hmm. dollar number. And the zero-based approach is really kind of starting from scratch where you look at every single line item uh, and you just have to justify every single expenditure, you know, for the budget for that. Uh, Zero-based budgeting became popular during the 80s in particular, especially in the governmental field, where it became important for governmental organizations to uh, not just take the prior year number and, you know, automatically increase it, Mm -hmm. literally, Mm -hmm. you know, just mathematically increase that number by a certain amount. And what would happen is, uh, as we all know, if you didn't use your budget by November, by December, everybody jumped on the (laughs) bandwagon and and, and spent the rest of the money in that budget. Now, the incremental obviously seems so much easier, but I'm wondering how often you recommend the zero-based starting from scratch. Are there certain types of budgets that are always done this way, or is it just up to the organization to decide when they don't want to just do everything the same way they've always done it and get a real good feeling for how they're doing it? That's a really good question. And, and you know, again, I think as I've uh, matured in the industry, <laughs> um, I've realized that budgets really are neither one or the other. That really what it comes down to is line items. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're looking at uh, budget expenditures, you know, certain line items, you just have to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, for example, 
you know, maybe you're going to want to look at that, the line item for going to conferences. Mm -hmm. And you're going to look at every single line item there and say, okay, this is the conference I'm going to do this year here. I really need to know more about infection control. So I'm going to go to this one. Uh, this one I'm going to do because it's finance. That zero based approach where you're actually building the expense model right from the base numbers. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, the budget for line items such as utilities, mm -hmm. uh, electrical, well, it, you're not really going to be able to use zero-based budgeting for that. You're just going to look and say, okay, last year it cost me this amount. You know, uh, we're probably going to use the same amount of electricity this year. The only thing that's uh, going to impact it is how much the electricity that the base rates are going to cost. Mm -hmm. And then you would uh, incrementally increase that. So I definitely think that it really depends upon the line item you're looking at. And that was what I was going to ask is that you can do your budget using both types of these, right? Like maybe Correct. even different years. One year, like you said, you're saying, okay, it costs this much to go to the conference we need somebody to go another year you might say you've got this much money for conferences who's going to go you can pick two people or you can go to cheaper conferences right. and pick you know four people that can go or something like that so it really all it's very flexible it sounds exactly like. and so i created a tool which i've uploaded for our uh, patron members that is you know a relatively simple spreadsheet though uh, it does all the calculations for you automatically um, and it allows you to do it whatever way you wish, either incrementally or, you know, you could just put some simple formulas in there to increase by a certain percentage. But but really, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you can vary it uh, by line item, vary it by year, uh, just based upon whatever your knowledge is. You know, for example, you might, just to use our examples there, you might just say, this year you want to really budget the uh, line items for uh, education because you really have to kind of rethink the whole conference uh, mm -hmm. process that you had in the past. But maybe after that, you, you look at uh, 20 20 you say boy that was a really good year those conferences are great i think we should all go to those same conferences next year let's just increase it by uh, an inflation factor so what type of information do you need to start to prepare that budget? So the first thing that we need to start is, and I really think this is extremely important, is getting overall case volumes by physician. Your your software should be able to generate this information, and that gives you a real good baseline because really, you know, as we all know, our industry is driven by volume. So to, to really get accurate information, you know, for this area, you need to look at every individual physician and, and determine, you know, what's happening with their practice. Maybe they're relatively flat with their volume changes. Maybe they're retiring next year. Maybe they're bringing a partner on uh, this year. So getting that information specific to those physicians or by physician is very important. Also, you should get case volumes by payer because you're going to want to know that payer mix. What's happening there? Now, not a lot of changes usually occur in the volumes by payer, but you're going to want to know this information just in case some major changes occur in your marketplace. Maybe, you know, one of the insurance companies in your marketplace pulled out. You don't want to be budgeting for that particular uh, insurance company for the mm -hmm. next year. And if uh, all of their volume went to another insurance company that pays at a different rate, you're going to want to take that in consideration when you're putting together the budget. You're going to want to have this information by CPT code, by the way. I really feel that uh, getting CPT-specific uh, information for those that, that don't know, CPT stands for the current procedural terminology. CPT4 codes are the individual codes that are used specifically for the case that's being done. So you might have, you know, in your organization, you might do, you know, 5,000 procedures a year, but they might only be mixed uh, between, you know, 120 different uh, CPT4 codes. 
You need to have in-depth knowledge of your managed care contracts. You need to have those contracts available to you. And just as a side note here, and we should talk about this in another session in the future, is that you should be pulling those managed care contracts out on an annual basis, reading through them and making sure that you know when they roll over, when it's time to renegotiate them, uh, and make sure that the managed care organization keeps to the promises they made in those contracts. And then, of course, you need a detailed knowledge of every expense and cost uh, to the center. You need to understand what's on each of those line items when you're looking through your expense ledgers. And then you need to have some uh, knowledge of monthly cash collections because you want to make sure that those cash collections reflect the true amount of money that you're getting. Just saying that this is what your revenue is based upon the cases that you performed is not enough. You need to know that you're collecting that money, that you're not having to write off an awful lot. And you're going to want to know how much you're not able to collect. And how do you predict that case load volume and the revenue that you're likely to get? So the historical data is the the starting point. You need to get uh, these reports from your billing software. And this is where I kind of have to point out how important it is to have good software. People often ask me, you know, what system out there is the best? And first of all, uh, I'm not going to give that answer because, mm-hmm. first of all, every organization has a different need. But you have to understand in the ASC space, there is no good software out there. Frankly, we just have you know somewhat mediocre software. Uh, and the reason for that is that we're not a large industry in the scheme mm-hmm. of things. You know, most of the major players out there that have literally billions of dollars for software development uh, are going to be focusing on physicians, uh, you know, the practices, the hospitals, et cetera. And this is not to put down the, you know, the wonderful software companies that we do have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that they don't have the financial resources to add uh, incredible f- features that can meet every need that we have in the industry. And uh, the best they can do is work with uh, within the budgets that they have and the amount of money that we as uh, surgery centers can afford to pay for this software. If we could pay them more, they would give us software that, you know, would uh, would be able to make coffee, which is extremely <laughs> important for me. I mean, I, I haven't yet seen a system that makes coffee. But that type of system doesn't exist mm-hmm. because the money isn't there to be able to produce it. So the best way of saying this is that we get the system that gives us the most valuable information based upon what our particular needs are. So in doing that, we get, uh, you know, we should be pulling reports to give us volumes by physician, procedures by physician, cases uh, by payer and carrier, procedures by carrier, you know, a list of physicians that are losing volume, physicians that are adding volume, new physicians that are coming into the area that are likely to come to your surgery center, uh, loss of physicians due to uh, retirement and relocation. And then we need to know what is happening, what types of new services are going to be added or what types of new procedures are going to be added. We know that CMS added uh, cardiology this year. Uh, We know that a number of years ago, vascular access was added. Those are areas where we're recruiting pretty heavily in the ASC industry. And and if you're not already thinking about that, you should be thinking about it. Um, And you should be anticipating when you're putting together the budget, what services you might be adding to your organization based upon those conversations that you're having. This is an awful lot to absorb. So where do we actually begin with this? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if we're actually following our time frame here, we're probably at the beginning of that second month when mm-hmm. we're gathering this because it's going to take a while to get all this information. Uh, so we, we begin by, you know, reviewing all of those detailed procedural reports that we're getting, analyzing, cleaning up the data because it's going to be dirty when you first get it off the computer system. You're going to want to focus on those payers uh, that are going to be changing reimbursement and the changes 
cases that are current in your marketplace. As I said, this is a very dynamic uh, marketplace right now. And we have to anticipate that insurance companies are going to come and go and that uh, those uh, good payers are probably going to be the first ones that we uh, we lose and that uh, we're, we might be uh, seeing shifting uh, volume. And by the way, this is kind of a point where we should point out that you know, the political environment that we're in right now with all of the conversations about potentially doing Medicare for all or, you know, having single payer health insurance. Uh, those are things that we as an industry have to keep a very close eye on because it could have major impacts on our organizations. Uh, while I was at the conference, I asked the question, okay, if you don't think this is serious, imagine that you're putting together the budget next year and the only uh, reimbursement rates that you have are your Medicare rates. How are you going to survive that? And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know why my audience didn't anticipate that question, <laughs> but that's certainly the way you have to think about it. it and, it, you know, if uh, universal health care or if we do have Medicare for all comes to the ambulatory surgery industry, it is really going to cause quite a major shift. Probably, you know, many surgery centers are not going to survive that type of, of change simply because their infrastructure is such that uh, they need a certain amount of reimbursement to be able to cover the overhead costs. And and if uh, you're bringing, if all the rates come down to Medicare and there's no significant increase in the in the volume of procedures that you're doing, uh, this could have a major impact on it. So another point that we should make here is that be prepared. Uh, I think we're all right in 2020, obviously, uh, but be prepared. Stay on top of what's happening, you know, in the political environment, so that you can, you know, start making plans for whatever might uh, might change. Devote adequate time to estimating revenue, you know, based upon this uh, these reimbursement changes. It is going to take you time to go through it. Check through all your managed care contracts or with the provider relations department to see if reimbursement changes are occurring in the next budget year. You know, check to see what the cost of living adjustments are. Uh, if there are cost of living adjustments, you know, check to see if uh, there's a way to get a cost of living adjustment uh, if your contract doesn't have it. And uh, this is, uh, again, uh, when you're putting together these budgets, it's really a good time to kind of reanalyze all of your contracts. Carefully map out your uh, revenue by physician and, and the total uh, for the revenue budget. And, and again, I like to really do the budget physician by physician and procedure by procedure. Verify revenue by cross-checking with procedures by carrier report if if adequate reports are available from the software. I, I didn't say this before, Sue, but it really is important that your organization uses billing software or software that has been developed specifically for the ambulatory surgery industry. Mm-hmm. I know there's a, there's a lot of other players out there. There's a lot of physician practice management systems, computer systems that say, oh, I can I can manage a surgery center also. The truth is they they probably can't, and they probably can't do it uh, as effectively as a, as a system that's been designed specifically for the industry. Okay, so that sums up the revenue side. What about expenses? Good question. So as we talked about before, you know, the, the major ways of doing this is looking at your prior year's numbers and either uh, adjusting them incrementally based upon the cost of living adjustment or whatever adjustments you have uh, or doing a zero-based approach there. But the important thing is kind of watch those trends. If uh, you're going to find things that are, are going to go up, you know, relatively minor amounts every year. You know, certainly things like rent, they tend to go up in, you know, increments like every five to 10 years. Uh-huh. Uh, you're not going to see those necessarily going up every year, depending upon the way your contract is written. Uh, and some items are just not going to go up. There aren't a lot of those, unfortunately, but uh, <laughs> some things will remain the same and some are going to go up higher than, you know, the cost of living uh-huh. even. For example, we know that drugs uh, don't follow uh, standard, you know, cost of living adjustments. We were listening to uh, someone talk during the conference about 
sutures and that the uh, suture rep came in and said, uh, oh, I'm, I've been able to keep your costs down and next year's increase is only going to be 18%. And the funny thing is that the administrator like freaked out when she heard the 18% and the nurses just said, oh, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Uh, You know, because the vendor came out and made it sound like they were doing them a favor by keeping the cost down Mm -hmm. to 18%. But can you imagine 18%? First of all, because, you know, we know our salaries aren't going to go up by 18%. (laughs) So uh, we certainly know that that most line items are are not going to go up by that, uh, that amount. But we know some of those major players in the suture field, you know, really feel like they have total control over these numbers and can just increase these numbers, uh, you know, these exorbitant amounts. And by the way, they, the punchline for that is they took all of those uh, sutures away from that company and went to their major competitors. So uh, oh. <laughs> so the 18% uh, never happened. Nope. Uh, as a matter of fact, they experienced actually a decrease in their cost because oh. even the number that they were charging for it was higher than, than their competitors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so keep an eye out uh, for that. So it seems like the major takeaways from this are that for the average surgery center, a rigid budget is not always very useful. That's right. And that we should consider a rolling budget or forecasting. Right. So, and to that point, of course, you read ahead in my script. Uh, <laughs> and that really is the point, is that I don't think that these rigid budgets that we all know and love and, you know, read in the, the books about finance and accounting really don't work for the average surgery center. I like to say that uh, I stopped doing budgeting in many of our centers many years ago because what we found is that we put together this budget, we rolled it out, and then by February, we we're spending all of our time explaining the things that happened in the month of January that threw you off budget right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then you spent the rest of the year explaining all those things that happened in those beginning months. And it was never a useful tool after that. So here's what I really believe you should be considering in, in the average surgery center, or what I like to say, you know, how do we budget in the smaller centers? Budgets really become problematic because you spend most of your time explaining away uh, growth or changes or one-time events that occur. So here's what I recommend is that I put together a spreadsheet, which we've uploaded to the, the patron uh, section of our website, which shows a 12-month period. Mm-hmm. And what I would actually recommend is that you copy that over and do it for more than 12 months. What I like to do is I like to project 12 months into the future. If this were March 1st, then I would be going through February 28th of next year and calculating you know, month by month, what I expect those future months to be based upon the information that I have today. So at the end of January, I'm going to dump the numbers into this spreadsheet by month of all the things that actually happened in the month of January. I'm going to look at February, March, April, et cetera, uh, and make adjustments to those numbers based upon what the best information that I have right now is. And then let the spreadsheets calculate the numbers moving out. Look at all of those numbers. Make sure that you're making money or you're at least not losing money. Uh, make sure that the cash flow is flowing appropriately. Make sure you're making enough money that you can make the distributions that your owners know and love and, and want. And in this way, even though that's not technically a budget, these financial projections that it provides you gives you a lot of great information about where you're heading. And if you prepare this type of a spreadsheet or use the type of spreadsheet that I uh, have prepared for our patron members, then you're going to find yourself being able to do what-if analysis. 
So if the doctors come back to you and say, hey, listen, what would happen if I brought more cases? Mm-hmm. You can say, hey, this is going to be the impact of this. What's what we call sensitivity analysis. So you, you always keep copies of the spreadsheet that you know, showed what you are currently doing. But then you create another spreadsheet. You just copy it over and you know dump in some new numbers. And you compare the numbers on that spreadsheet to this. Remember, you can make as many of these spreadsheets as you want. So you're not actually completely wiping out all that information from the prior periods. You have all this information from prior periods, which is the equivalent of you know, really comparing the budget that you prepared in December to the budget that you prepared at the end of January to see what that impact is going to be. And this becomes much more useful information. And by the way, there's other side benefits from this. You constantly have financial projections in front of you Mm -hmm. that you can provide to banks, that you can provide to the owners, that you can provide to new prospective owners that are coming into your organization. So doing this type of analysis really, I I think, makes you look like a genius Mm -hmm. uh, to your governing body and can uh, really help help you to prepare information that is going to be much more useful than just Mm -hmm. showing what the current financial statements uh, show. Yeah, and really guide your decision-making. Obviously, we always want doctors to bring in more cases, but what types of cases are going to, you know, how is it really going to affect the bottom line? That seems like a really, really useful thing for the doctors to see. Well, and and if you're you're constantly looking at the volume by doctor, Mm -hmm. and Dr. Smith says, hey, listen, Dr. Jones, I noticed that you're still doing a whole bunch of cases over in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I asked the administrator to do an analysis of what would happen if those cases came over here. And by the way, that would make all of us, you know, this much uh, wealthier Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. as a result of this. Those conversations at the board meetings are not like what if conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, okay, this is exactly what we expect yeah. would happen yeah. if you were to do this. So, because quite frankly, you don't always know if those cases are, are going to come. You don't always know if they're listening to you. And if you give them very solid information about what the impact is going to be, they're much more likely to to act on it. Yeah, even deciding on a new procedure, you could put in the numbers for what are all what is the equipment, what are the supplies going to cost, but then how much are you going to make? So right. then in the end, how would it actually work out? I can't believe, I think I'm actually getting excited about I, I <laughs> budgeting. <laughs> the good, I, Jeez, I need somebody to actually thing. start doing these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I really do think, and, I, and the fact that you're excited about it shows uh, how, you know, nurses in in the, you know, cause you, you really have a, the opportunity to drive more business to the organization because you're in a lot more communication on a daily basis with the doctors that are bringing cases. So if, if you can go back to, you know, the person preparing these spreadsheets or you yourself, if you're doing it and just play around with it based upon information you might have gleaned from them, mm-hmm. you know, in a conversation in the hallway, you're going to have a good opportunity to put down some real good projection about what could happen in the future if you'd make some changes. And what is the role of the governing body in all of this? Well, as we all know, the net answer to mm-hmm. all any question we have is that the governing body is ultimately <laughs> so, yes. responsible for everything that happens in that center. Yeah. And you need to keep them really involved in this. So while I, I don't think you need to get the governing body to give you permission to prepare these uh, financial projections like mm-hmm. I've talked about, unless you have to hire somebody from outside to do it for yeah. you. They have uh, to approve it. They have to approve it and they have to have buy-in. They have to understand what the value is going to be of it. You know, maybe let them listen to this podcast so that they can get excited, you know, about the possibilities of these things. But And the governing body needs to uh, be involved in at least the planning process so that they can kind of identify those factors that are uh, they expect to impact at least their aspect of the, uh, the operation over the next year. And then if this is going to be a formal process, they need to review, they need to be prepared to make modifications based upon the information that you provided them. Uh, and then we need to document in our, our minutes that they've approved that budget. Keep in mind that accreditation organizations do 
often require you to have a budget. Uh, now, that doesn't mean it has to be a rigid budget. It could simply be projections that the governing body says, you know, they, they've accepted as a, as a plan for the next year. It doesn't need to be super formal, but it should be a document in the minutes that you have approved either the budget or the financial plan that you outlined. Well, thanks for explaining all that. That's a lot to absorb, <laughs> but it made a lot of sense, though. Good. So let's take a short break, we'll and we'll see. come back with the upcoming events. So one of the changes we made this year when we uh, started 2020 is that we're adding to our part three state-specific information, but I don't have any state-specific issues that have been brought to our attention <laughs> this week. So mm -hmm. uh, we'll go right on to our upcoming events. So you're never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC. And in this section, we highlight upcoming events. If you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. As one of the most sought-after speakers in the industry, John is available to speak at your state or national meeting, and the ASC podcast with John Gailey can even record an episode from your meeting. And Sue, to that point, we have uh, been in discussions with ASC Association, and we are going to be recording a session from a special booth that's being established at ASCA 2020. Oh, nice. uh, so they're going to record a couple podcasts. Uh, the ASC Association is going to be doing a podcast. They're actually uh, trying to gear, uh, as I understand it, their podcast toward uh, marketing ambulatory surgery centers to the public and to people in the uh, political arena and, mm -hmm. and employers also. So their focus is a little bit different than ours. So we're going to be in this glass enclosure, and you'll be able to watch us recording these episodes. So uh, I know oh, that's, that's nice. exciting for our listeners. I'm sure they've been waiting. I'm sure they're all going to be standing outside watching <laughs> us record this uh, this episode. The HHC Achieving Accreditation is an interactive, in-depth two-day seminar designed to help organizations prepare for their HHC survey. The next seminar is March 13th and 14th in Miami. And to that point, we've been talking to HHC about another episode with them about, you know, transitioning, because we mm -hmm. know what's happening right now with IMQ, and uh, HHC has been talking to us about how do you transition from one accrediting organization to another, and uh, HHC has expressed an interest in having an episode about that. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll finalize that in the next couple of weeks. Sue, I'm really excited about this. The first ASC Nurse Leadership Conference presented by Progressive Surgical Solutions will be Thursday, February 6th and Friday, February 7th, 2020 at the McKesson headquarters in Dallas, Texas. You and I have plane flights already mm -hmm. uh, going down there. Uh, Ambitory Healthcare Strategies is a proud sponsor of the event, and we're expecting to record a special episode from there. We're hoping to get some speakers from the conference, and I don't have a lot of plans on that right now. We're still putting it together, mm -hmm. but very excited. So basically, back in the 80s, there was a similar conference held, uh, I think it was uh, FASA, the predecessor to ASC Association, uh, held this like on an annual basis. And it wasn't for particularly well attended, unfortunately, and that's why it kind of died out. So mm -hmm. Progressive Surgical Solutions is kind of trying to resurrect it, or at least, I don't know if it's so much resurrecting it, but they really feel that nursing leadership is so important that uh, it needs to have its own conference. So uh, hopefully this will be a successful program. Uh, it's not too late to sign up if you're mm -hmm. interested, and just Google ASC Nurse Leadership Conference. The Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's joint semi-annual conference and trade show is February 20th through the 21st at the Westin Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia. 
This year's National Advocacy Day is taking place, as you mentioned, in Washington, D.C. on March 24th and 25th. Participation in ASCA's National Advocacy Day is the best way to build relationships with your members of Congress. Uh, advocate for your ASC and the ASC community and network with other ASC leaders. And this is an election year. All uh, mm-hmm. you know, members of uh, the House of Representatives are up for re-election, and a third of those for the Senate are up for election. So uh, they're particularly interested in talking to us this year. Mm-hmm. So uh, if there's never been a better time to go to Washington and advocate on behalf of our industry. AORN's Global Surgical Conference is in Anaheim, California, March 28th to April 1st. We will be attending the conference and recording a special episode there. The Florida Society of ASC's Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 16th through the 17th in Buena Vista, Florida. The Iowa Association of ASC's 12th Annual Education Conference is April 17th and 18th in Johnston, Iowa. ASCA 2020, as we talked about, is in Orlando, Florida, May 13th through the 16th. It is the ASC industry's most highly regarded and well-attended event. Attendees include physicians, administrators, nurses, managers, and owners of ASCs from across the country and indeed throughout the world. And this year, they're doing it in combination with uh, SAMBA, which is the Society of Anesthesiologists or one of the societies for anesthesiologists. So great conference is expected here, and we're all going to be converging on uh, Orlando in in May for uh, probably the biggest conference uh, ever, given the the combination of SAMBA and uh, ASC Association. At the ASCA's uh, annual conference, you'll find more than 50 educational sessions designed for ASC professionals at every level, nationally recognized ASC management experts, networking opportunities with more than a 1,000 of your colleagues, hundreds of exhibitors who can help find the solutions your ASC is looking for, the latest in regulatory and accreditation updates. You really need to make sure you sign up to attend. Go to ASCassociation.org for more information. Of course, We're going to be there, as we talked about, like we always are. Sue, you're not going this year because of our puppy. Yes. We'll only have had him for a couple of weeks, so he's going to need... Some taking care of. Absolutely. She. She. She's yes, going to be. Yes. Um, the, the puppy has not been born yet. Nope. Uh, and by the way, you showed me a picture the other day of the puppy we turned down. Yes. I don't know if it was it, but yes, it was from that litter and they said it's still available and Aww. it was very cute. No, making us feel the guilty. The timing's just not good. No, no. Um, Becker's 18th Annual Future of Spine and the Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference is June 18th through the 20th, 2020 at the Swiss Hotel Chicago in, of course, Chicago, Illinois. The Florida Society of ASC's annual conference and trade show is July 15th through the 17th at the Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The Ohio State Association Conference will be September 30th through October 1st, 2020 at the Hilton Columbus Polaris, as it was last year, in Columbus, Ohio. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, and Lori Rodericks. The SC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all the rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, 
attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsors. First, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, one of the nation's leading regulatory compliance and financial oversight firms. For a free consultation, contact John Gailey today at 585-594-1167 or through email at info at ah-strategies.com. And Eden Group Development, which publishes ASC Regulatory Compliance Series, the ASC industry's leading books including the Survey Guide for ASCs, a guide to the CMS conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines for ambulatory surgery centers, and Ambulatory Surgery Center Governance, a guide for ambulatory surgery center owners and governing body members. These must-have books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble or directly from the publisher at reg-books.com. That's R-E-G-B-O-O-K-S dot com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.